be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hear now the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we are not here in our own names, that we're not here in our own strength. We're thankful that you have provided yourself and you have promised a blessing, a multiplication of your kingdom in and through us, and that we are able to stand here as heirs of that promise, heirs of Abraham, but most of all, heirs of Jesus Christ, and that we are able to share in that. Help us to hear it, help us to proclaim it, and help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you may have been able to... uh, on the news, or maybe even took the time to watch the whole coronation service this past week. But um, you may know that Great Britain has a new king. He has been coronated. And this, no, it was not me, if anyone heard on the news, that uh, the new king in, in Great Britain is King Charles. I hope there was no confusion that I had taken on a new job there. But you know that likely that King Charles uh, has been coronated as king and is now the king of Great Britain. And that includes not just the area there of uh, Great Britain, Ireland, I mean, of uh, England, Ireland, and Scotland, but also all of its territories. It's still a pretty big area, not as big as it used to be. Um, It's a much smaller kingdom and and, uh, empire than it was once, but it is still a pretty big area. We as a family, and of course, uh, not only as just interested parties and as Christians, but also the homeschool family, we um, did a little bit of thinking about that and talking about that around the table. And we found most interesting the vows and the oath that was taken. Um, that w- It's something unique in this age that Great Britain is still a Christian kingdom, at least by name. Um, and a Protestant one at that. Um, and it, the oaths that were taken in the ceremony was very much a worship service. And there has been some controversy there because of that. There has been um, some uh, confusion because of that. But um, it's been something that's been in the works for some time. 
Um, and even uh, King Charles, who was once Prince Charles, he was even planning for it back in the 90s that he was uh, petitioning that some of the wording would be adjusted um, because of how he wanted to not be considered to be the defender of the faith, but he wanted to be the defender of faith, which um, really tells you a lot about maybe what he thinks. And if you see some of his political positions, he wants to be one who is considered to be a defender of all faiths. Um, Now, in some respects, on a political level, you could see how that makes sense because Great Britain is made up of a, a variety of different faiths, or I guess different religions at least, and he was being very political in that mindset. But since Great Britain, by its laws and its founding, which also is backed by Parliament, it is a Christian faith that it upholds. And so there's an interesting, at least dichotomy there, and a a tension there. But in that particular ceremony, if you did watch any of that, or if you listened to it on the news, there were some things that he made an oath to that are pretty powerful, at least in word. And I'm going to read some of those things. Uh, One of the Anglican bishops says, Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God, in the true profession of the gospel, will you, to the utmost of your power, maintained in the United Kingdom, the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve inviolability and settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof as by law established in England? And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England and to the churches they committed to their charge, all such rights and privileges as by law do, or shall and pertain to them, or any of them. And King Charles III responds, All this I promise to do. The things which have here before promised, I will perform and keep. So help me God. Now, those are pretty weighty words there. It was a pretty weighty commitment. You might even notice that in some of the language of that particular question, sounds very similar, like when we had the Milligans here to join. Those uh, had some of the similar languages, and you can kind of see how that's been passed down. Some of the commitment to the government, government and discipline of the church. That Are you being bound, are you binding yourself to be a defender of this truth? One, to uphold the laws of God in the gospel, but to be committed to the church in this particular office that was given. Now, I'm not going to go down the road and talk about all the distinctions of why or what's going on here by this particular monarchy that is a Christian monarchy and its proclamation. And I'm not even going to go deep and to dissect the faith of King Charles. But as you can see here, this is very weighty stuff. And if he is true to his word, and then he has a lot to do, and if he is using the name of God in this particular ceremony for his particular political position, he has very, he could very much be breaking the third commandment and could be endangering himself to great judgment. Again, I don't know what his heart is, and I don't know what his true faith is, and I know that he has a very politically woke kind of presentation about him. It's without any question about that. But it's very heavy because he says these words, so help me God. 
He is pointing to God. You may hear also some people say, so help me God as my witness. He is also a witness to this, but also asking for God's strength in this. He is declaring the name of God. He is declaring someone else other than himself, someone greater than himself, to be a witness and a stamp to what he has said. Now, for those of you who were here during our prayer time, we had that, a similar scenario in the passage that we read out of Deuteronomy, where the elders and the, de- the um, elders and the uh, priests and the judges um, had to swear before God that they were innocent of this man's blood, this one who had been found murdered, and they were pointing to something else. They were swearing, and you see the same language in the passage today about how this oath is there to help settle disputes that when King Charles, once Prince Charles, said, so help me God, it was to be a stamp to give confirmation that the word is true. I want to allow that to resonate in your minds as we go into this passage today because I think that we have plenty of opportunities and not only in what's in the news, but day by day and even recently with our own personal commitment and ecclesiastical commitment to the Milligans as they join our church, we made a a vow and an oath with them that we would serve together in the name of Jesus Christ, by the name of Jesus Christ, that this commitment would be so. And if we are not true to our word, that we are breaking the the third commandment of using the Lord's name in vain. And also we have the judgments that could come forth from that. As we go into today's passage, I want to continue to remind you of those things that we read earlier on in the book of Hebrews to strive. Remember the three things? I hope that by the time we finish Hebrews that you can remember because they echo throughout the whole book of Hebrews. But there was one, let us strive to enter into the God's rest. Does anybody remember the second thing that we were called to do in that particular passage? To hold fast? To hold fast to what? To our confession, to hold our, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. And then lastly, what was the, la- the last imperative? To draw near. To draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to the throne of mercy, and knowing that in a time of need. So we have this, we have this um, proclamation to us, this command to us to strive. It means that we're, we're pushed to do something. And then we are to hold fast in doing that, a confession, a promise, and a proclamation of God, ultimately Jesus Christ. We're, that thing that I was talking about, how we are appealing to God by pointing to something else. We're making a confession. We're holding fast to basically God's promises. But we are called to draw near. And that's a, that's a hopeful thing, that we're drawing near to God with confidence to the throne, to the throne of grace in a time of need, knowing that this particular commandment for us to enter into his rest, to hold fast our confession, is actually a very helpful and encouraging thing that we can be drawn near, drawn near to God and we can receive his mercy in a time of need. So let that be also layered into our mindset as we think about what the writer of Hebrews is telling us today. And remember what he just recently told us in the same chapter that we had this this provocation, a weighty provocation for us to, to move on past our dull hearing, our sluggish and lazy ways, for us to el- graduate from elementary school. 
And if you remember, the elementary school was the basics, which are all good things. The word of God, prayer, sharing the gospel, the expectation of miracle. Oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong thing here. It was the repentance and faith. There was baptism in the Holy Spirit and the resurrection in the eternal judgment. These particular foundation doctrines for us to build off of that. And what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to encourage these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, and ultimately us, is that we are to build off of these foundations to go further up, to, to strive to enter into more of God's rest, holding on to these confessions so that we can draw nearer to God and receive this hope and this encouragement. Now, I don't know about you, but I would assume that all of you would like to have more hope, that you would love to have more encouragement, that you would love to have more strengthening and assurance. And what we have in this particular passage is a roadmap that has been established by Jesus Christ, a path for us to find that. And here he's giving us this example of this promise that's made to Abraham. And at the end of this particular sermon, and the end of this particular path for us now, is to lead us to a place of great encouragement. So let us look at what he's telling us to do. So we have Abraham as our example. And we see here in the title of my particular um, copy of the Bible, it says, The Certainty of God's Promise. And it starts out with, for God made a promise to Abraham. Now, I know all of us probably have made promises. And I get kind of nervous sometimes when my children ask me if we'll do something or to do something to, to actually commit to it. And I know that my parents, they were so leery of it. I would ask them things all the time like, are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? Or can I have that? And they would say, we'll see. And I used to hate that. It was never any kind of certainty there. It was like, well, what does that mean? We'll see. I want to know. You know, give me your commitment. And they were wise on one hand because they were like, if I tell him yes, then, then he's going to be hounding me about this all the time. Well, we have here this encouragement to us. And you have to understand that the Hebrew Christians, they're just like us. They were children once too. They understand how this works. This is all part of the way we all have lived in our lives is that when we want somebody to give us something, we want them to promise, we want them to keep their word. And a lot of times when somebody says they're going to do something, we'll, we'll, we'll ramp it up and we'll say, promise, <laughs> give me your promise. Give me your word. We have here, God made a promise to Abraham. Now, as I've already pointed out in this situation with King Charles, since when you make these promises, if you're going to make it valid, if you're going to stamp it, there has to be something even greater than the one making it. You know, you hear all kinds of sayings, like the grave of my mother, which I always think is a kind of a weird thing. I'm sure it has a, an interesting origin. That I'm, I swear to you on the grave of my mother <laughs> that I'm going to do this particular thing. Maybe not the best thing to bring up on Mother's Day, but there's some kind of honor and value there. <laughs> that even if my mom was such a respectful person on her grave, I'm, you know, on the honor of her name, that I'm going to make this happen here because mothers are greater. You know, we typically see that not not all mothers, but we know that in general we have this great honor and respect for our mothers. Well, God doesn't have a mother. God doesn't have anyone greater than him. And it says here in verse 13, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, 
he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And so what we see here is a lot of things going on, the kind of a summarization introduction of what I've already mentioned to you. God made the promise. He's already made a promise that there's going to be rest. There's going to be land. There's going to be fulfillment. There's going to be kingdom. There's going to be a multitude of people. And then we see that that is being confirmed based upon who he is. He is the one confirming it. He's not just making empty promises. He's going to assure that this is going to happen by by his own self. He's not just reporting to Abraham something that's going to occur outside of himself. He is assuring it by the greatest thing that there is, which is he himself as God. As you were hopefully attentive during our lectionary readings, you would have noticed that that is a part of that story of God fulfilling his promise. In fact, what is being quoted here was what was said there in that Genesis passage that Kevin read earlier on. But there is a contrast scenario, or what seems to be a contrast scenario earlier on from what occurred in Genesis 22 to what was promised in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So there's a few things that we can know here. One, that he's going to have a son. Who's going to be the mother of that son? Sarah. So it's not going to be any other women that are happen to be in the community. <laughs> it's going to be Sarah, his wife. And so he's going to have a son. And what's the name of that son going to be? Isaac. Isaac. And how is this covenant going to be fulfilled? Through his offspring. All right, so we know a few things here. We know that Sarah is going to bear a child, and his name is going to be Isaac. And the covenant, the everlasting covenant, this eternal covenant, is going to be fulfilled through the offspring of Isaac. So we fast forward to Genesis 22, into the passage that we read this morning. And here we have God testing Abraham. Now, now Abraham didn't, I'm sure, didn't get a memo that morning saying, just to let you know, God's going to test you. You know, you know, sometimes when you hear alarms, like fire alarms, or you know, the, back in the day when they would do the siren at, at, on the weekends at my house, at noon we would have the, the air raid sirens go off. I don't know if you, any of you all grew up in that kind of neighborhood, and you would hear it at noon, and you, and you knew that they were testing. I always thought, what if they decide to drop bombs at noon <laughs> on Saturday? We would not anticipate that anything's happening, but you know, maybe they, I don't know if, any, if anyone ever tried that or not, but... It was a test, and you knew that it was a test. Here, I'm sure Abraham didn't get this particular passage ahead of time. And God said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, at that particular time, you have the particular temptation to say, Wait a minute. <laughs> What's up? 
Because just earlier you told me when you gave me this name Abraham and changed from Abram to Abraham, you said that Isaac, that came from Sarah, and he is my only true son, was going to have offspring and that you're going to establish your covenant. Now what we see with Abraham here is what did he do? The very next verse there. He rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. And he took off to do what God had told him to do. Now, I, it, it doesn't give a commentary of what's going on in Abraham's mind. The only thing that we have here, and we have it now here in the book of Hebrews, is that Abraham believed God and trusted God and that he had faith in the promises of God. We don't see, and we see in other times, even when he was told that he was going to have a son, we see some, you know, like, whoa, what are you talking about? But here we see that he had trusted God enough to be able to tell that God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. He didn't quite answer what's going to exactly happen. He didn't know how it was going to go down. He knew that God would provide a lamb somehow. And it doesn't say, was he thinking, well, is Isaac going to be my lamb? Is it, or is it be the lamb? Or what's, you know, what's going to happen here? But then in verse 13, it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so we see that in this particular story, that God had made a promise and he kept his promise, but he also tested inside of that promise Abraham to have faith in that promise. Now, we all have a promise in Jesus Christ. We know who the ram is. We know that the, the horns that he has of power are much greater, that his is the crown of a king of glory. But we are still in this age, even though we know the promise and even though we know who is the fulfillment of that promise, we are still in a time of sojourning through this land and getting to a place where we're in the already but not yet in this full fulfillment. And so did the Christian Hebrews that they were still struggling through the time and the age in which they were living and they needed to be encouraged much like Abraham, that they are also going to be tested, that there's also going to be some confusing times, but that we must hold on. And what are we going to hold on to? And what we're being taught here today is to hold on to God and his promise and to hold on to his oath. Because he reminds us in that passage in Genesis that by myself I have sworn declares the Lord. And he says that because you have done this, he's talking to Abraham, and you have not withheld your son, I will surely bless you. That there is a cause and effect reaction that even though God has made the promise and God has secured the promise, and we even know that he has fulfilled it in Jesus Christ, we have not yet seen the completion of that, but for us to enter into that work that he has accomplished, we must strive we must respond we must not prove to god that we are good enough to receive his mercy but we are proving to ourselves and one another through the testing that god is good enough 
to keep his promises by trusting and obeying him. So we know here that that Abraham didn't win grace from God because he did this thing. He received the blessing of of the fulfillment of it in his own life. It was an assurance of what God had already set out to do. Do you see the difference there between earning the grace and the other is entering into the rest that has been accomplished? God has accomplished the rest from the very beginning, and we are called to take action to enter into it. And as we are entering into it, we are reminded that we have an assurance to keep holding on and to keep holding on tightly because he is greatest. He is the greatest one that he even swore by himself that he would surely do this. He knows how we think. He's giving us a promise. He's showed us how he has fulfilled promises over and over again. And he says, I am sure, I am surely, you can be sure that I will do this. And what it says here in this particular passage in Hebrews, that Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He was able to receive the promise by being patient and trusting and obeying God He was able to receive that work that was accomplished. But then the writer of Hebrews is taking a moment here to to kind of remind us how important this is. He says in verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves. In all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Now when we read that, you know, I, I have to confess and I think admit for all of us that people's word doesn't mean much nowadays. You know, when, when, you're, when you're reading this here, you know, for them, I would say it's pretty weighty. And, and even maybe just a few decades ago, it was pretty weighty. But we, we know that in the culture that we live in, we're, you know, it's, we're just a culture of lies. And oaths come and go. Vows are just kind of formalities anymore. And again, I don't want to put too much suspicion to what happened in Great Britain this past we, but we're all kind of like, really? Are you, are you sure you want to say those words? And, you know, if he was here, I would, I would kind of just I'd be like, it's kind of tough <laughs> for us to really think that you're going to follow through on this. But that's not what it's meant to be. And, and we know that even then, when these words were said, that people would lie. It's not as if this is not something that's totally uncommon of that time. But it's, it's, it, at least the concept had weight to it. And we're being reminded here that this is usually a final confirmation when there's a dispute or a question. And that's why even today when kids say, well, promise. I don't even really hear it as much as I used to. That used to be a thing maybe just in the last decade that has kind of faded away. Promise me you'll do this. And it may be just a habitual thing, but that's the same kind of concept is put your word behind it. You know, put some kind of weight behind it. This past week, I get a call from the lawyer that is working on our property transfer from St. Peter to us for the building in Mendota. And we started this process back in December. <laughs> so it's going on six months for this to transpire. And, and you would think it's pretty simple. I mean, they're just giving the building to another church. 
And we've, we've already been before the judge once, and we've had to give all kinds of backup back and papers. They've even told us to, told at least St. Peter for some of their officers who are the trustees to go and to get notarized that they are signed, that there was a vote, there was a meeting, that everybody agreed in the church to give this property over to us. And they had notaries that whether some of them knew them or didn't know them, to, to watch them sign on the form, yes, I saw, I was a part of that meeting, this is legit. And the lawyer thought that would make it all good, and that's what we heard from the judge, that that, that made it all good, and that everything is, should be cut and dry. And the reason why that this is such a big deal is because when it comes to property for churches, you wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal, but people have a lot of, you, know, you have a, a, a group of people that are, who have tithed and given their offerings and money to a particular institution to build a certain building. Their, their heart goes into it, right? And if that gets transferred to someone else that you didn't necessarily want that to happen or if somebody did something with that for a purpose other than for a church... That's going to make you upset. And so there's been lots of disputes and conflict. And even the particular property that we're in, there's some history there where some of the people who came to that church and who built that church, their, some of their history was that some of them who were in a different church, the property, from what I understand, was somehow or another it became the property of the pastor, and the pastor ended up receiving the long-term benefit and either made it into a home or sold it for his own property. And that created such a stink that they put in the deed that it has to be used by a church. And I think that the lawyer and the judges, there are now two judges involved in this, see that. And they go, you know, this has been a big deal for people. This has been a dispute. So they asked us this week, we don't want you to just, well, there was two pieces of paper. There were two trustees from St. Peter. And one of them, it was a notary, and it says, I've seen this happen. And the other one said, I swear that I saw this meeting, and I was a part of this meeting. And I think when, they, when, they, when whoever wrote that one, when the judge saw that one, he says, you know, I like that. I want the other one to say that too. <laughs> In fact, I want everybody to sign papers that say I swear <laughs> on that. And he's basically saying, you got to promise. you got to give me, you got to swear. And I think, I think it says you have to swear in the Bible. You have to do some kind of act in front of the notary that you're swearing on a, something better than yourself. That you're legitimately knowing that this is happening for real. And that people are fine with this property going to another place. And it seems frustrating, but people want something greater than themselves to give them confirmation and assurance that this is really happening and there's not going to be a future conflict, that you can go into this particular action completely at rest, that everything's going to be at peace. And what God is doing here, he is desiring, it says in verse 17, to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, which is us, we know that it's us because it talks about the heirs of the promises of Abraham, which is us, earlier on in chapter 2. That the heirs of the promise of the, unchar- the unchangeable character of his purpose, that he guaranteed it with an oath. 
So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Well, what are these two particular things? Well, we one know we see that it's his word. We see that it's his unchangeable character, that his character is unchangeable. And we see here that it has to do with the unchangeable character of his purpose. His purpose and his promise are interwoven, that he has had a purpose and he has promised that he is going to do the thing. He's ultimately, he is fulfilling the very first command that he's ever given to the people by saying, be fruitful and multiply. He's saying, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to be, I'm going to have a fruitful and a multiplying kingdom, and I'm going to do it through this means. He has had that purpose from the very beginning. It's been unchangeable, and that's going to be the complete end to everything, is that he's going to have a kingdom full of people. And it's going to be a fruitful and wonderful, glorious kingdom. He has never changed. And so he's promising. He's pointing back to his promise. But then the second thing that's unchangeable is his own being. He hasn't changed. He's, he's, he's pointing to the promise. And he's pointing to, through his oath, he's pointing to himself. So the promise and the oath are both pointing back to him. He's saying, I have a purpose and a promise that I've always kept. I've kept it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to continue to keep it. And I'm the one that's going to make it happen. And I've been unchangeable. And I'm the most secure thing you can bet on because I am God. And so he makes that oath. This promise and his oath are centered into him. So we see that we are to strive in, to enter his rest by first of all, by trusting and obeying him. But we're to hold fast this confession that Jesus, as the great high priest, he's not only the one who is presenting before God the promise, but he actually becomes by himself, by being the great high priest, he is the oath, he is the one that's going to make it happen. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills that. He's the fulfillment of promise and action. That the oath actually becomes substantial in the person of Jesus Christ because he is the final stamp of confirmation for us. And so we see both of these things being implemented here. And then we are shown here that by striving to trust and obey, having patiently waited like Abraham, and to holding on to that promise and that oath that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we can flee for refuge to Jesus Christ for strong encouragement. Now remember, in the context of what Hebrews is, during your discouragement, during your suffering, during the challenges that you face, we are to go back to his promise. We are to go back to the oath. We're to go back to Jesus Christ and we are to go back to Abraham and look at that example because we see in verse 12 of that chapter, it says, so that you may not be sluggish. Remember, we want to get out of elementary school. We don't want to quit repeating elementary school, but we want to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Well, we're seeing here that Abraham is being put before us as an example. So we need to go to Abraham's example in the word, which is what we're doing, and look at how God fulfilled those promises. 
What we're being told here is to keep going back to the Word of God and reminding us of our reminding ourselves of the promises of God over and over again. So what is it saying? It's saying to strive to be disciples in the Word of God so that you may be encouraged, so that you may be strengthened, so that you may find refuge, so that you may have hope. There's no way that Christians can get the fullness of the hope of God and not be flipping and reading through the Old Testament as well. That's why I don't believe in New Testament-only Christians is because everything in the New Testament points us back to the Old Testament. And if you know that you can get a strong encouragement and to get hope and strength and rest and mercy, why would you not go back and be a disciple of the Word? You have to be hungry. For those particular things. We say we want those things. We're saying we're discouraged. We're hopeless. We're sad. We're like, oh, well, come here. Strive to enter the rest of God. Hold fast to the confession of Jesus Christ and draw near to that and receive it. And we're like, no, I just need his grace. I just need I just need Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? Well, I just need Jesus. That's all law. That's all commands. That's not, that's not grace. No, it's God's word. It's full of grace. It's the same grace that Abraham tapped into. It's not that, that Abraham, Abraham obviously didn't show forth this great character of himself and ability, and therefore God made him an heir of promise. No, God himself had to be that. He's the only one who has the character of an unchangeable purpose. In being, it's because it's, it's pointing all to Jesus Christ. And so we can see that we can receive strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We have this sure. Remember again that God said surely, and it says we can be sure. And you can say, are we sure? Yes, we can be sure and have a steadfast anchor of the soul. Now let me make this a little bit practical for you. How I've come to learn this is that I want you to think about your most pet sin that you have. Whatever the thing is that you find yourself that you just tend to keep holding on to. You know, some of you, I mean, we're all addicts of some way. There may be things that you are connected to that gives you some kind of comfort or some kind of um, peace. And sometimes it's complaining. A lot of times when we don't like the way the situation is, we'll, we'll complain. And we'll rant. And it gives us this little temporary that we feel like we are kind of over the situation and that we're victims of the situation and we'll whine and complain, but it actually is just digging us into a deeper hole. What God is telling us ultimately here is that in any kind of temptation and weakness that we're dealing with, and you've got to remember these Christian Hebrews were probably being tempted to give up all kinds of hope. And if we think about it, maybe on a smaller scale, it might be easier for us. You know, even in our little small pet sins that we keep committing over and over again, we have to remind ourselves, one, what does the law of God say about this? Some of us don't even know what God is saying about it. And so we'll make up, you know, Satan's easy to come in and he's come in and he's like, oh, that's not a sin. You're, you're good. You got grace. You're all good. No, but if you go to the Word, you're like, you know what? Having this kind of mindset about something, holding on to this kind of bitterness, or letting something become a God to you, that's a sin. I'm thankful recently in praying with my children that one of my children recently has this particular item that's very important to them. And this person said, 
as we're going around the room having prayer requests saying, pray that this doesn't be my God. And I was like, that's, that's good. This little thing that, you know, that none of us would typically think about being a God, but if it, if it captivates us and causes us to be distracted from the things that we're called to be in in Christ, then it becomes a God. And for a lot of us, it's, it could be, like I said, it could be bitterness, it can be complaining, it can be certain kinds of pleasures, it can be just laziness, it could be just, a, we're so good at, we're idol factories. We're so good at making idols, which is really bad. It's not a good thing to make idols. But it says that if we trust God, and this is what you have to put in your mind, this is what I've had to learn to do, that when I'm tempted to go into those moments, which it might be ranting or it might be some kind of laziness or whatever it is, I have to remind myself that, you know, I, can, I, I need to endure this temptation because I know this is contrasting what God's word says. And I know that if I, if I trust God's word instead, I can enter into that greater blessing and I will be assured. I know that when I give in to the sin, that I lose assurance, actually. I'm weakened for a moment. I'm disarmed for a moment. But if I, if I hold fast and I say, no, God said this, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to, like Abraham, I'm going to patiently wait if you think about the things, you know, and I hear about this, you know, I hear about this with young people like, you know, I want to get married. I want this to happen. I want this to happen. And, and, you know, and, I, and, and they're all good things that the Lord has designed. And it's like, but I'm going to do this or that instead to make it happen. But you're like, no, God's word says do this. It's like, yeah, but I really want this. Then hold on patiently and see what the Lord will do. Think about Abraham. Now, why is Abraham being really strong here in this particular situation? Well, remember going back to that promise of Isaac. Did he hold on tightly to the promise that Isaac would be the one? Did he do it from the very beginning? Did he hold on tightly from the beginning? He actually didn't. He didn't hold on. He was like, Ishmael. Here you go. Here's Ishmael. You can fulfill your promises through him. And God said, no. No, no, no. I told you that it's going to be through Isaac. You got the wrong I person here. You got Ishmael and Isaac are two different names. And then to go through, and then he sees, there's Isaac. Look, God was right. And, and Sarah laughed and all that. And it was like, okay, well, we really messed that one up. I mean, can you imagine being Abraham and Sarah? And they're like, whew, that's going to be tough. I hope everybody forgets about that situation. <laughs> and then now every Christian in the world knows about it. But then we're told here in Hebrews to go back to them, to go back to Abraham, because in that particular moment, which is pretty scary, he says, go and sacrifice your son, the one with the promises are going to be fulfilled. Now, I think all of us might be able to go back and look, hopefully, if you're of a certain age and a certain season in your life, that you can see where you doubted God, and he went ahead and fulfilled his promise and gave grace there. And then now we're in situations where we're like, oh, I'm doubting again. And we start coming up with excuses, and we're doing the same thing. We're like, oh, but God, I really want this thing. I want this peace, or I want this pleasure, or I want this status, or I want this family life. And I want, I want you to do it through Ishmael. And God's like, no. You can't do it any other way than the way I've told you. And you're only going to just cause yourself a lot of pain 
by trying to create some other path. If you want peace, strive to enter the peace that I've already accomplished and trust me and obey me. Because in verse 19, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, he's pointing us back to Abraham, not because he's wanting us to worship and focus on Abraham. He points us back to Abraham so that we'll end up right back at looking at Christ. Because when we go to the story of Abraham, we see that ram caught in the thicket. We're like, that's who God provided. He provided Jesus Christ. He provided ultimately his own son. He provided himself and became the fulfillment of that promise for us. And in every single situation, I promise you this, whenever you are desiring something that ultimately has something good, and you have to think about how God has made, he's made rest, he's made our family lives, he's made work, he's made pleasure, he's made all of these things that are his. And I promise you that if you just wait on the Lord, that we get to experience not just what Abraham experienced, but we get to experience This drawing near to God because of what Jesus has done. Jesus went fully before the Father in that inner place. He went behind the curtain and he is dragging us in with him and pulling us in with him. I've heard Tim Keller talk about how you know, this inner room, if you think about it, he, he was using like saloons in, in the Wild Best. You know, when you go to a saloon where, where the guy who owns the saloon or the, where, the, where his friends are, where the, the, the powerful people are, they're in the back room. You know, it's kind of the same way in the gangster movies. You know, you always you have to kind of wind your way through the dance floor and you get, you're getting to the inner room. And that might seem like kind of a dark picture of that. But, you know, the, getting to that inner room is a difficult thing. You know, and God is not a gangster like what we think of. I mean, he's a good and gracious, benevolent gangster of anything <laughs> because he does own everything. I mean, that's what gangsters think. Gangsters think they own everything and they're knocking out all their enemies. Well, God is the good and gracious God who does own everything and he is knocking out all of his enemies. And he tells us that Jesus was our forerunner and he went and came before. And by the name of Christ, we get to enter into that inner room and to be able to receive these blessed places of mercy on his on what he has done on our behalf because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek the writer of Hebrews keeps stamping this thing in the order of Melchizedek and the reason why he's doing that in the order of Melchizedek is because Melchizedek points to the eternal God saying so we can trust this we can trust Jesus because his priesthood is not one of man It's of God. And so, as an imitator, we, like Abraham, like Jesus, we should trust and obey. We should strive to enter into that rest by patiently waiting and looking forward to obtaining that promise and that assurance. We should hold fast to the confession of what Christ has accomplished. And therefore, we get to draw near to God in that inner room and receive help in a time of need. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.